The recent difficulties of Indian tycoon Gautam Adani are a reminder that everything is relative. Though Adani's personal net worth has evaporated by perhaps half in a matter of days, he is still believed to have somewhere in the vicinity of $61 billion in the bank, or roughly the GDP of Slovenia. Next month's rent is probably on balance covered. But there are potential ramifications for India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. Modi and Adani have long operated as patron and protector of each other, both self-made men from Gujarat, overcoming humble beginnings and lack of formal education to ascend to the peaks of Indian commerce and politics. Adani, Earth's third richest individual, well, he was this time last month, Modi, wielder of the world's largest democratic mandate, which he will attempt to renew within the next year or so. Adani's travails began with a report issued by the ominously named American investment group Hindenburg in late January. Hindenburg suggested, congruently enough, that Adani was overinflated and combustible. Shares in Adani Group companies imploded accordingly. Narendra Modi has outrun scandal before, notably the hideous sectarian pogroms which beset Gujarat in 2002 while Modi was the state's chief minister. But Adani's recent wobble is significant. This is the company which runs many Indian ports, stores a third of India's grain, and operates much of India's energy infrastructure. Does this put a dent in Modi? Does it put a dent in India? And while we're asking, what does Narendra Modi still want? This is The Foreign Desk. India remained relatively unscathed from the 2008 financial crisis. But this is the first stress test of India's financial fundamentals because Adani also is exposed or has exposed a large number of ordinary investors in India. Adani has taken a large number of credit from Indian public sector owned banks. So I think this is the first time in India's history in its era of market globalization that it's actually going to smell the coffee where it's at. There was this very recent court ruling in uh, the U.S. State Department that the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should have immunity because of his position. And they cited other world leaders who have had immunity. Narendra Modi, along with Congo's Kabila, was also there. They do business with him because they want to do business with India. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me, first of all, from Cambridge is Shruti Kapila, a professor of Indian history at the University of Cambridge. Shruti, first of all, I was wondering if you could introduce us to the figure at the centre of this story, Gautam Adani. Who is he and how did he become as important as he is? Well, Gautam Adani belongs to the Gujarati sort of long tradition of business families. Now, Gujarat is in the Western state of India. It is the crucible of capitalism in India, alongside Mumbai, further south slightly of it. So it has had a long, centuries-long tradition of enterprise and business. So whether it is other business houses that people might be aware of, say, the Ambani's or the Reliance industry, which is also the big story, say even up to a decade, the key competitor to Adani is also a Gujarati family. So this is a long genealogy of tradesmen, entrepreneurs, and Adani is the latest entrant, as it were. It's a family business. It is not a corporate house. And his rise is coterminous as a business magnet 
in a very competitive entrepreneurial culture with the rise of Modi. Modi first as the chief minister of Gujarat, and then finally Modi as prime minister. And it's really when Modi becomes prime minister in 2014 that Adani becomes this outsized figure in India's history of capitalism, which now has, as it were, a global footprint. So this is not a national enterprise. This is not a national corporate house. It has a footprint across the world. So that's the first thing to say about him is that A, historically coming from an area which is enterprise rich, two, Modi and him go a long way back. And finally, now that the story of Indian big business is no longer limited to the story of India, it is actually global. But just for added context there, when we describe the Adani group as a family business, to be clear, it is a huge family business. Can you give us some idea of the scale of what the Adani group does? Yes. I mean, the thing is, unlike very many business groups in India, modern or now particularly, they're not related to just one single commodity. So it's manufacturing, it's infrastructure, it's mining, it's defense. Now that India has opened up, you know, its defense manufacturing sector to private enterprise. So it is a, you know, full spectrum economic exercise. Some of the other houses even go into retail. Adani hasn't quite gotten into retail yet, but it's the latest acquisition in the Indian world has been India's most prized brand in television news. NDTV, which was the flagship television channel of India, independent-minded, and he's also taken over that. And that really has kicked off a different kind of storm in India about the nature of mass media, its ownership. So it's not like Murdoch in the West, where, you know, Murdoch is seen to be the story. In India, the story, interestingly, Murdoch actually, when he came in, you know, everyone thought he would gobble it up. But it's actually Indian business houses which have done so, and Adani has his critics say is really creating not just a sort of scene of crony capitalism, but a serious monopolistic enterprise in various aspects. And the opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, pointed out in parliament two days ago, which even I was taken aback by, that before Prime Minister Modi came to power, Adani was not anywhere near the top 100 business houses in the world, or rich person. He was in the 600 something, according to his statistic. And today, you know, when before the markets crashed on him and the like, he was the fourth richest man on the planet. And we are now talking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, sums that one really can't compute in any simple way. So that's the scale. And the rise is short and intense. It's a rise which has really happened in the last 10 years. So what do we understand, though, of the reasons why this astonishing corporate leviathan presided over by, as you said, one of Earth's richest individuals, appears to have been so vulnerable to a relatively obscure entity in the United States taking a bit of a pop at it? I think there were two immediate triggers. One, the fact that there was going to be an SPO, there was going to be a public kind of announcement of one of his enterprises. It was going to be listed. And that spooked the markets, it seems. And the second reason is, uh, not to put too fine a point here, but I think there is growing attention to India in the world because it is ostensibly the fastest growing economy in investing in India, precisely because it is not China. So, you know, the kind of redrawing of investment geography in the world. 
And I think it comes also at a time when India itself is kind of punching, I wouldn't say above its weight, but it's also trying to be a bit of an international player, given the Ukraine scenario and India's so-called neutrality over this war. There's been a lot of international attention to India, which has been quieter. It's not simply been a love in, which was the case in the early 2000s, when India was a toast of the world in Davos and in global corporate circles. This time around, yes, I think the global markets and investors are looking very closely to India, but they're also looking at their kind of financial fundamentals because your listeners might not appreciate this or may appreciate this, but India remained relatively unscathed from the 2008 financial crisis, which is the global crisis when governments and you know big businesses had to kind of rejig their relationship. Uh, there were multiple reasons for that, but this is the first stress test of India's financial fundamentals because Adani also is exposed or has exposed a large number of ordinary investors in India. So something called the life insurance company, which is something, you know, an ordinary salaried person is going to invest in it. You know, it's very small, but it's very big. I mean, it's in the hundreds of millions of people invest in IC. Similarly, Indian banks and Adani is not alone, but Adani has taken a large number of credit from Indian, India's not private banks, but public sector owned banks. So there's a huge amount of exposure of Indian banks also to the Adani enterprise. So I think this is the first time in India's history in its era of market globalization, because India, of course, was protected till the mid 80s, that it's actually going to smell the coffee where it's at. I think that's why the Heidenberg report that you mentioned, an obscure entity, you know, it's a 400 page report. And the trigger also was that Adani chose to respond. And he's a very elusive media figure. He's not, he's only gives very few kind of media kind of appearances. And he chose to rebut it. And that really sets off this now a kind of very big public controversy. But it's also kind of stalled the Indian parliament because the parliament is sitting at the moment in India. So, yeah, it's part of a public debate for the first time, because up until now, Rahul Gandhi had been kind of almost using his name as a kind of shorthand to say that the economy needs a second look in India. Shruti, thank you. That was Shruti Kapila at the University of Cambridge. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. For a wider look at what the Adani affair might mean for Narendra Modi and to consider what Modi might do with his next term should he be re-elected regardless, I'm joined now from Bloomington, Indiana by Sumit Ganguly, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. And here in London is Somnath Batabayal, Lecturer in Media and Development and International Journalisms at SOAS. Sumit, first of all, what's your assessment of the extent to which Adani's problem might become Modi's problems? It's a trifle too early to tell. I think the repercussions are being felt. Nirmala Sitharaman, the uh, finance minister, obliquely referred to it in the course of her budgetary speech. Subsequently, the government has tried to distance itself, not surprisingly, from Mr. Adani and his enterprises. Parliament has been in an uproar. Mohua Moitro, who is a firebrand politician from my home state of Bengal, excoriated the government on the floor of parliament. 
and Parliament had to be dissolved twice because of the highly contentious views that were being expressed by the opposition. But I think the Modi government's strategy will be to simply ride this out and hope that the press, which is mostly pliant, will not raise too many awkward questions. Well, Somnath, on that subject, we have talked on Monocle 24 many times before about arguably the lack of rigour, let's put it like that, with which India's media currently regards Narendra Modi. But journalists are journalists and newspapers are newspapers. Do you get any sense that India's press is sensing an amount of blood in the water here and that they might sense that they've got a chance to take a bit of a whack at the Prime Minister? I'll go with what Sumit said. It's a very pliant press. About three months back, Mr. Adani acquired three of India's national channels, NDTV, which was left of center and you know, last of the probably what we call free press bastions. The rest is owned by the Ambani's, the Z Group by Subhash Chandra. So you know, India doesn't in that sense have a free press anymore. What was there about say 20 years ago that has completely changed. Having said that, there's some very, very enterprising journalists. Boranjoy Guhotakurta has been running a sole campaign on this since 2014. There's several court cases which the Adani group has launched against him. There are a few independent news outlets, online outlets, which work. But as a pack, what do you think that there might be some scent or some kind of a taking down of Mr. Modi? That I really doubt will happen. And also the reaction from these state institutions has been so muted to this that I doubt that anything big will come out of this. Of course, as Sumit says, the fallout, we'll have to see. It's too early. But the initial reaction is that they're all clamping down. The few big industrial houses brought together Adani shares immediately after just showed how they banded together, the way the Adanis refuted the allegations in very nationalistic terms. And anything you write in the papers today, you are either branded a anti-national or unpatriotic. And it's a huge allegation. And I don't think the Indian press at the moment has the fight to take this to the Modi camp. And not because journalists per se are pliant, but because they know what has happened to their colleagues over the last 10, 15 years, the way state-run institutions have come after them, the Enforcement Directorate, the CBI, income tax. It's been an assault for a very long time and journalists being shot on the streets. So it's not been an easy ride for Indian press. Even the Press Freedom Index, we have slipped by eight more positions to the 150th position out of 180 countries. So that tells you about the world's largest democracy and media freedom. Sumit, it is very often the case with populist demagogues, and I I think we can characterise Narendra Modi as such, that they are able to rely on a substantial base of support that will not shift literally whatever they do. One is put in mind at this point of Donald Trump's, I suspect, entirely accurate assertion that he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue in broad daylight and probably not lose a single vote by doing it. Is Modi that cast of leader? Is he able to reassure himself that he has that large, solid block behind him that will not shift no matter what? 
I think so. And in considerable part, because with rare exceptions, mostly from regional political parties, the opposition is in a state of complete disarray. The Congress party is a shell of its former self. Rahul Gandhi, the scion of the family, has sought to assert himself in the recent past through this massive walk that he undertook across the country, trying to mobilize people for the Congress party. This was a grand gesture on his part, but I don't see any programmatic alternative that he provided during this long sojourn across the country. It was yet another populist gesture on his part. And yes, it did bring about crowds. But will this translate into electoral results? I'm not sure. Because in considerable part, unless you can offer a viable alternative to the policies and stances that Modi has taken, I'm not sure that you can mobilize the voters to oppose Modi. And consequently, Modi can wrap himself in this nationalist mantle that you alluded to, as in the case of Trump. I want to talk a bit shortly about the degree to which the Adani affair may or may not have affected Narendra Modi's standing on the world stage. But before we talk about the Adani affair specifically, there was another sort of diplomatic incident of sorts recently, which I thought was illustrative, Somnath, which was Modi's response to this not terrifically flattering documentary that the BBC broadcast here in the UK. What was your read on why that began? became such a thing and why it was allowed to be known that Modi was upset by it. I mean, I know, you know demagogues and despots are always terrifically thin-skinned, but it does seem like a kind of trivial thing for the leader of a, well, for the leader of any country to descend to, never mind a country as mighty as India. Andrew, you answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> demagogues are extremely thin-skinned. But what was really surprising was how quickly the state responded. It brought in emergency era laws into the domain. The Delhi police acted with, again, Mahua Moitro had been mentioning this, that while murder cases go unsolved, riots take place, but students were rounded up in different universities where screenings were being staged. So the reaction was quite immense. And also what was interesting and I think ineffective is when you ban something, it kind of sparks a Momentum. And therefore, so much conversation went around. But coming back to your original point, as you said, demagogues get really upset. And I think Modi was seriously upset. And the reaction from the foreign ministry, again, the same conversation. This is colonialist. This is branding India, you know, in uh, century old conversations. So again, very nationalistic. And I think whenever we go back to that Gujarat question, I have seen Modi get rattled every time that comes up. And I've seen him walk away from interviews when asked that question. He's simply not answered and just walked off. So that really rankles him even now. And he'd rather that just goes away. But it seems to be dogging him. 
Sumit, the Gujarat issue is an interesting one to raise in this context because that was a significant millstone for Modi for a long time in terms of his ability to act on the world stage. I think I'm right in recalling that there was a period in which he couldn't actually get a visa to go to the United States. But if we look at him as a figure now, and he is established as India's prime minister and a very dominant prime minister who people have to deal with whether they like him or want to or not, do you get the sense, though, that these things we're talking talking about, especially the Adani affair, but also this ridiculous petty reaction to a BBC documentary, do they diminish him as a global figure? You know, it ought to diminish him as a global figure. But there are two factors at play which are to his advantage. Number one, India, the Adani affair notwithstanding, and we'll see the economic fallout of that in the weeks and months ahead. But until that episode took place, India was on a path of steady economic growth, one of the few bright spots in the world's major economies. And consequently, Foreign investors were eyeing the Indian market, particularly after Xi Jinping's shambolic handling of the COVID crisis, which left China in a state of disarray, which affected global supply chains. So many foreign economic powerhouses and conglomerates were looking at India as the next best alternative. That image might have been a bit tarnished in light of the Adani affair. We don't quite know yet. But that's one factor that Modi had going for him. Second, given China's increasing intransigence, not just along the Himalayan border, but along the Taiwan Straits and elsewhere, the United States has been actively courting India as a strategic partner, and many other major powers have also lined up behind the United States. And Modi and his extraordinarily able foreign minister, Subramaniam Jaishankar, are both acutely aware of this. And consequently, they counted on many of Modi's shortcomings to be set aside because of these two parallel interests that a number of countries in the world, especially the major powers, have in India, combined with India's rise to the presidency of the G20. And Modi was playing this to the hilt. In light of the Adani affair, let's see what transpires. Narendra Modi has been Prime Minister now for nearly a decade already. He's 73. As you understand it, Somnath, what does he still want? What part of his domestic vision would he regard as incomplete? Or has he just got himself into that position where he sees himself as Prime Minister for life, so he will just keep on keeping on? There's a larger vision behind Modi and the BJP's rise, which is also related to the right-wing Hindu organization, RSS, about a Hindu country. There's one part of Modi being prime minister and how he sees himself and how the organization wants to move forward. So despite 73, I don't think Modi is going anywhere very soon. The likelihood is that he will win the next election. And one of the strange factors of this at the moment is that there seems to be no credible 
successor to Modi. There seems to be no one who has been pushed forward. There is a home minister who is adept at winning election battles, apparently. There is a chief minister in India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, who has been headlining a bit, but there's no credible successor. That seems very strange to me, given the BJP and RSS long-term plans on the country and the foreign policy and all of that. But at present, there is no, I don't know if Sumit will agree with me that there's no credible alternative that there is to Modi. And if this is because he wants to be the only figure in Indian politics at present could be one of the reasons, but I don't see a successor. But may I also, Andrew, just add to what Sumit was saying regarding foreign policy and image of Mr. Modi, especially in the US. There was this very recent court ruling in uh, the US State Department that the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, should have immunity because of his position. And they cited other world leaders who have had immunity. Robert Mugabe was one of them. And Narendra Modi, along with Congo's Kabila was also there. So what the U.S. actually thinks of Modi is very clear in that document. And they do business with him because they want to do business with India. You know, in one sense, this question of has this incident tarnished Modi? I think everyone who does business with Modi knows the past and knows his antecedents and knows his very close connection with Adani. One of the things we sometimes forget is that the day he became prime minister, he boarded an Adani plane that, you know, marked it out clearly which camp Adani is on and which camp Modi is on. Sumit Ganguly and Somnath Batabayal, thank you both very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Mullet, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.